Luke 23, verse 13. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people, said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him. And indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for it was necessary for him to release one to them at the feast. And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them. But they shouted, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Then he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Let's pray again. Lord God, as we come again into this weight of woe, into the darkness and the distress of our Lord's sufferings for sinners, Lord God, we come and plead that you would give us a sensitivity to this. Help us to see with eyes of faith these scenes that are written for us, to gaze with feeling upon our Lord, to understand more of that love which he has shown to the loveless and unlovely, Lord, teach us more to esteem, to honour and to wonder at our beloved Saviour, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Jesus is a problem that won't go away. Pilate has tried and Pilate has failed. He didn't know quite what he was going to do with him the first time, so he sent him to Herod. Herod has essentially exonerated him and sent him back. And now he stands before Pilate for what is essentially the second part of the Roman element of the trial of Jesus Christ. And now in this portion that we've read, we're going into greater detail. There are, if you like, blurs in between these scenes and then there's sharp focus as we come into another situation. So there's Pilate. And he has the Sanhedrin before him. And then there's a, sort of a, a whip through when you come to the Lord Jesus now before Herod. And he is pausing there for a moment. You see his treatment. And then there's another blur. And now he's back before Pilate with the chief priests, the rulers, and now the people. There's some kind of escalation here. There's a, an intensification. The nation is now gathered to decide the fate of Jesus Christ. If you, if you will, now the, the priestly and the political and the popular voices of the Jewish people are all now being raised in outcry against Jesus of Nazareth. 
The first thing that we can see as we study this tonight is the accusation that is levelled against Jesus Christ. The accusation levelled against Jesus Christ. And it seems like Pilate is now still just as uh, confused, if you will, just as vague as was at the beginning. Go back to verse 2. We found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. And when Pilate challenged him, perhaps almost in uh, disbelief, you, you're the king of the Jews? He says, I find no fault in this man. And they become all the more angry. But he's stirring up the people. He's a troublemaker. He's teaching everywhere. Judea, from Galilee to this place. And when Pilate calls these chief priests and rulers and people together, he doesn't really get any further than that. You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. You've told me that he is, in essence, a political messiah. He's a national saviour, that he's going to cause Rome a problem, that he's some kind of a rebel against Roman authority, against Caesar himself. It's a very vague charge, but it's a dangerous one. He misleads the people. He's turning them away. He's stirring them up. He's a troubler of Israel and he is a threat to Rome. Now, there's no real substance to this. There's no real detail here. It's a very vague charge. It's a sort of a a shotgun blast rather than a sniper's rifle. But this then seems to be the issue. This has become the point of contention. And so far, we've had Pilate dealing with it and we've had Herod dealing with it. And that then leads, secondly, to the declaration concerning Christ's innocence. Now, again, this is not the first time that we've had this point made, but it is being emphasised for us by Luke. So if you go back again to chapter 23 and verse 4, Pilate has said to the chief priests and to the crowd, I find no fault in this man. And then when he went to Herod, he's sent there because Pilate knows he belongs to Herod's jurisdiction. He wants to hear what he's, uh, see what he's heard about. He wants to see perhaps some miracle done by him. And Herod and Pilate become friends when Herod sends him back. There's a, a line here about the uh, vehement accusations of the chief priests and the scribes, but there's nothing about any charge that is sticking. There's venom and there's vileness, but there's no real charge that actually holds. And now that is going to be reiterated and re-emphasized. Look how often it occurs in the passage that we have read. Verse 14. Having examined him in your presence... I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. Couldn't be much plainer, could it? I have found no fault in this man concerning those things in which you accuse him. You brought this vague, broad brush accusation, and even in its broadest sense, I don't see any grounds for condemnation. And notice that neither did Herod. 
Okay, so you've got Pilate the Roman, you've got Herod the would-be king of the Jews. Both of them have examined him and neither of them have got anything to, to charge him with. Indeed, to some extent, both of them seem to find it laughable, even ludicrous, that Jesus should be considered king of the Jews. Pilate says it again, emphasising it in verse 15. Indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I found no fault in him. Herod found no fault in him. The charges you've brought are empty. Indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Get the message as you read Luke's record here. Jesus Christ does not deserve to die. And then verse 22. What evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. Luke's making sure that no one here tonight can walk away and say, well, maybe the Lord Jesus did do something wrong. Maybe there was something that would stick in these charges. Remember, Pilate doesn't have a particular reputation for a man of justice and righteousness. And yet three times again, after his initial declarations, after doubling down and seeing if Herod can get anything out of him, Pilate emphasizes three times, no fault Nothing deserving of death, no evil in this man. Despite the demands of the Jews, despite their expectations, despite multiple interrogations, several different occasions, and a whole slew of witnesses, publicly and repeatedly, Jesus of Nazareth is vindicated. He is exonerated. This man is innocent. There is no sin in him. He is not guilty of these charges. He has committed no evil. He is not worthy of death. You can't sidestep it. The evidence is absolutely plain. What is Pilate's intention then? Thirdly, his intention is to release Jesus. Now that's the proper natural consequence of a man being found not guilty and so three times again you see it verse 16 i will therefore chastise him and release him verse 20 pilate wishing to release jesus called out to them again verse 22 i have found no reason for death in him i therefore will chastise him and let him go now pilate's still a roman governor And Pilate's still trying to work a way around this Jewish uh, fury. So he's willing to chastise him and then release him. Now, we're not entirely sure what Pilate has in mind there, but it is at least possible that he means, we'll just give him a little bit of a scourging and let him go. We'll just get a whip made of leather with pieces of bone or metal woven into it and we'll beat him in a way that some men have died because of. And then we'll release him. We'll do a bit of damage. And then we'll get rid of him. Now that in itself is a curious suggestion for a man that you've just declared three times is innocent. It may be that this is Pilate already showing his, his uh, political foxiness. He wants perhaps to satisfy the bloodlust of the Jews as it becomes more and more apparent. Maybe it's a just-in-case beating, a way of sending a message to Jesus not to, not to mess about. But it may be 
that with Pilate's repeated insistence that he is going to release Jesus, that Luke is already setting up a contrast in extremes that pops up again and again during this episode. If you're going to release someone, it's going to be one of two men. It's going to be the innocent Jesus, or it's going to be the wretched Barabbas. Before we develop that, as we will in due course, I simply want you to understand Christ submitting to this dishonour for us. What is one of the cries that sometimes with real justice soars out of your heart when you are not being treated righteously? It's not fair. Now, sometimes that is one of those self-indulgent complaints. It is fair. You know, in one sense, none of us deserve uh, any real good in terms of the, the lives that we've lived and the souls that are ours by nature. But there is a principle of justice. If you're being lied against and it's bringing you down, if you're being falsely accused, if, if someone else has done something wrong and you're the one who's being blamed for it, there's a proper response before the God of heaven. It's not fair. This is the man who deserves to die, and this is the man who deserves to live. This is the man who should be set free, and this is the man who should stay in chains. And Christ speaks not a word. It's striking again. Earlier on, he confirmed once or twice some of the things that were being said in the presence of Pontius Pilate. Luke records not a single syllable that falls from his lips. Can you imagine the self-control that that takes? And everything in your heart might be crying out to say, but I am the innocent one. You yourself have said it. Why does Christ hold his peace? Why does Christ bow his head? Why is he willing to stoop so low as to be taken in place of a murderer? My friends, it is love that governs Christ. Pilate's ready to release him. See the desperation to crucify Christ. The Jews now are absolutely determined. Perhaps this is their, their last roll of the dice, as it were. They've got him before the Roman authority. They've got a charge that they hope will stick. And the intention is that this man must die. Justice is no longer an issue here. It seems to be that their blood is up and they must have the death of this man. Now, when you read in John chapter 1 and verse 11, what may seem like reasonably gentle words... He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. What does the not receiving of Jesus look like? Not just a, a polite request that he not bother them. Not even a slightly ruder turning of their back upon him. But a demand that whatever justice may seem to claim, whatever righteousness may seem to demand, whatever truth might seem to compel, we want Jesus dead. And here you have to, as it were, read into this experience something of what we were reading about in Psalm 69 a few minutes ago. Those who hate me without cause are more than the hairs of my head. 
They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully. Though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. Those who sit in the gate speak against me. I'm the song of drunkards. This is the experience now of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is their reaction. They are the accusers, his own people. It's very emphatic here. Luke pulls no punches. The Jewish people, from the priesthood down to the crowd, they want this man dead. There seems to be a sense of the Sanhedrin. Remember, these are the, the men who like to think of themselves, and how often this is the case. The people who like to think of themselves as something. The people who like to think of themselves as noble and dignified. And they seem now to be working amongst the crowd. Barabbas, 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 Barabbas. They're the ones who are inciting the crowd. Call for Barabbas. Let's kill this Jesus. They're whipping the crowd into a frenzy to choose the murderer over Jesus Christ and again you've got to say isn't there something of substitution in that give us the murderer punish the innocent give us the murderer punish the innocent it is one of the things that they are accused of in Acts chapter 3 and verses 13 to 14 in the sermon on the day of Pentecost uh, in, the, in the sermon, sorry, in Solomon's porch. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just. He was right there before you. God's appointed Messiah, and you were baying for his blood. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the Prince of Life. There, there are layers of irony and inconsistency here. It, it is curious to what lengths hatred will go. Hatred becomes blind, doesn't it? Once you really start hating someone, it doesn't matter how coherent your case is, you just want to bring them down. So, here are the men who will not acknowledge Pilate's political authority. They don't think Pilate has any right to be there. They don't think they are, have any obligation to obey him. As far as they're concerned, Pilate is the representative of an illegitimate power ruling in God's land. So the men who will not acknowledge the political authority are demanding the death sentence from the political authority that they won't acknowledge. For the purposes of this trial, we don't care. As long as Pilate gives the death sentence, that's fine. And they're calling for that death sentence against a man on the basis of his rebellion against the political authority. It's a trumped-up charge, we know that. But the charge is, this man doesn't acknowledge Caesar. Say the men who hate Caesar and have no regard for Pilate, really, themselves but who are demanding from Pilate a death sentence against a man who is, they lie, the very kind of man that they themselves are. And then you add to it this layer. They do all of this while insisting on the release of the man who's actually rebelled against the political authority. You say, what do you actually want? 
Well, we don't care how it sounds. We don't care how it holds together as long as you kill Jesus. We don't care why you say it. We don't care how foolish we sound. We don't care who gets set free. We just want the blood of Jesus. And it's not just that we want him to die. Crucify. Crucify him. Verse 21. It's a dark moment. They're not just baying for blood. They're calling for the curse of God and men to descend upon Jesus of Nazareth. They want him not simply to die, but to die dreadfully. It's the first explicit mention of crucifixion in the Gospel of Luke. We've used the language before. We've talked about the suffering and the death of the Lord Jesus. We've talked about him understanding what lies ahead. But there's a point here, as it were, that word should be resonating in this room. It should be echoing in your heart. This is the point at which it is all coming to a peak. They are demanding this injustice. They desire his destruction. Crucify! Crucify him! Remember the Lord Jesus can hear this. He's pleaded with his father. Lord, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And with his soul persuaded with his spirit humble before his Father in heaven. He has gone this way. Now on one level he knows what is coming because he is a man of the book. Can you imagine what it's like to be the man who hears the baying crowd outside the doors? Put him on the cross. What holds his tongue? Why does the Lord Christ stand here just as calmly, just as confidently? What conviction in his heart? Again, remember, he is prepared for this moment. And though the cry might strike a chill into his soul as, as this now begins to crystallize, not just death, remember the apostle says, but the very death of the cross the son of God has become a man as a man he is a servant as a servant he suffers to the point of death the death that he must die is the death of the cross he must be cast out by men he must be as it were suspended between heaven and earth the outcast of both my friends he is ready to do that for his people. Again, there's so many layers here. We complete this study by looking at the capitulation of Pilate to the hatred of Christ. Pilate gives in. There's been a tug of war with Jesus at the centre. But Pilate isn't really bothered about winning. This has seesawed back and forth. And there's really trouble that is brewing. It's not just the chief priests, not just now the rulers, the Sanhedrin. It's also the people. There's a crowd outside shouting for the blood of Jesus of Nazareth. There's a riot that is brewing. It's a chance for Pilate to act like a man. 
It's a chance for Pilate to stand up for what is true and just and right. Three times, even in this particular occasion, he has made clear that Christ Jesus is innocent, that there is no sin in him, that he has done no evil. He is not worthy of death. Pilate has an opportunity, I thought, to play the hero. This isn't meant to be heroic. Doing the right thing isn't meant to be heroic. It's just meant to be right. I mean, he's the Roman governor. Justice lies with him in the Roman system. It ought not to be considered something spectacular for Pilate to actually do what is right. That's what he is there to do. And he gives up. He surrenders and he goes with the flow. One of the great creeds of the Church of Jesus Christ has immortalised this capitulation. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. This man has gone down in history as the one who let Christ die when he deserved to live. Their voices prevailed. You know what that's like? You ever had to stand against ten? Ever been the one person in a room who knows what is right and good and true? It's painful, isn't it? When there's ten, fifteen or twenty voices and they're all saying something different. We're not excusing Pilate, but we understand the dynamics of this, the popular pressure. Truth and justice are abandoned. Do you remember the parable that our Lord Jesus told about the unjust judge? Why did he give the widow what she wanted? Because she had a just cause? No, because he got fed up with her and he wanted some peace. Pilate is the unjust judge. Pilate's the man who says, I don't care about truth. Do you remember what he asked recorded in one of the other gospels? What is truth? Is that really a man you want calling the shots in a situation like this? He abandons justice. Give them what they want. Let's find a way out of this. Verse 25 is explicit. He released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Pilate gave sentence. This is what you want. This is what you can have. Again, he's recorded as washing his hands of this. This is nothing to do with me, says the man responsible for everything that's going on. I don't want to be held accountable for this. And the Jews are the ones saying, that's fine with us. Bring it on. Crucify, crucify Jesus of Nazareth. You see the hatred and the weakness of sinful men. The Jews are calling for blood and Pilate's willing to give it. Enough for what might temporarily at least relieve the pressure. And when that's not sufficient, crucifixion. Playing with a man's life. But do you see the purity and the innocence of Jesus Christ? For a man who says nothing, he's remarkably present in this narrative, isn't he? He's the core of it all. He's the one around which everything is revolving. He is the innocent one. Remember again how Isaiah speaks of him in chapter 53. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to a slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. I think that applies primarily to his being crucified between the two thieves. But is there not perhaps a hint of this in the fact that he's standing alongside Barabbas, being numbered with the transgressors? Or again in 1 Peter, in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. This is Peter's comment looking back. You need to know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That's what you should see. That's who you should see. The man who stands here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Lamb without blemish and without spot. Pilate himself insists upon it three times. No guilt, no sin, no evil. This is the man who deserves to live, not the man who deserves to die. Jesus was a problem that would not go away. Jesus is your problem who will not go away. He's back before you again, just like he was back before Pilate again. He's requiring your assessment and decision again, just like he required another assessment and decision from Pontius Pilate. Who is this man who is this Jesus you have to answer that question you will answer that question one way or another you may not vocalise it you may not think it through but in your heart you are deciding again this evening whether or not this is the redeeming lamb of God spotless and without blemish who takes away sin the one who is worthy of your trust, the one who can make you right with God, the one who will bear your sins so that you might not bear them in their wrath and curse and punishment. Whose side are you on? It becomes stark, doesn't it? Are you going to stand here with Christ and put your faith and trust in him while Pilate condemns him 
and the Jews bay for his blood. <coughs> you either have to say that this is wrong on the deepest and most dreadful level, that this is the man who deserves to live, or you're just going with the flow like Pilate, even if you're now outwardly baying for blood like the Jewish people. Jesus is your problem, and he will not go away. He will come back to you again and again. He will come back to you in the preaching of God's word. He will come back to you if you read the Bible. He will come back to you in family worship. You may try and turn your back upon the truths that you've heard in this congregation. And Jesus, I pray, will keep coming back to you. That you will always know that you have to make a decision concerning the person of Jesus of Nazareth and the work that he came to do. I plead even now that you would decide for Christ, that this is the saviour of sinners, that this is the Lamb of God, that this is your Redeemer. And though he is despised by the world and though he is rejected by men, God's Lord and Christ is your Lord and Christ. By this point, and we're right now on the verge, there are two designs that are coming together. Two plans that have been brewing over the course, not just of Luke's gospel, but through history. Two designs converging on one moment, one man, one mountain. Satan's malice and God's purpose. And it's broken forth now. As you see the two, as it were, beginning to overlap, crucify, crucify him. That's Satan's hatred. But that's God's purpose. That's the marvel of it. You will take him with lawless hands. You will put him to death. But God knows what God is doing. <coughs> Calvary is the place where Satan thinks he's striking Jesus. He bruises his heel. Calvary is the place where Christ crushes the head of the serpent. These are not equal purposes. This is not yin and yang. This is not the force finding its balance. This is evil thinking it is winning. And God in that very moment securing his great, eternal, unending and enduring triumph. Divine wisdom has brought your Christ to this point. The spirit of Christ the Spirit of God is still upholding his Christ. And the Lamb goes meekly, silently, willingly to the slaughter. The sinful one goes free. The sinless one is condemned. Christ, even here, is in the place of sinners. Barabbas walks, Christ goes to the cross, made sin, the innocent dying in the place of the guilty. Is he going for you? Amen.